Hey everyone, this is uh, Jacob from the future. As it turns out, my audio from this entire episode was incredibly clipped because of the gain I set on my microphone. Now, I didn't realize this until after the episode was done and I asked Alex, hey, did you notice my audio was clipping? And he said, no. And then I listened back to the recording and well, uh, I'll roll the clip. Um. I'm just about to introduce him. Here's a little pause point. Uh, Jacob, I'm actually noticing a lot of um, feedback or static from your mic. Steve, are you hearing I'm, that? I'm not, no. You're not. Okay. It could totally just be my speaker. So ignore that and we'll keep going. Um, As a result, it's almost unlistenable in its original state. So uh, you might notice a few odd audio transition few points where the audio cuts out or does something weird well we're still learning how to podcast and uh i apologize i used a uh, an audio plugin to do most of the declipping that audio plugin was 130 dollars, which i was not willing to pay so there are some watermarks and stuff like that i had to get rid of and because i feel bad about not supporting the uh the folks who built said audio plugin. I'm going to let them have a little ad spot here, and then we'll jump right into our episode. This sound is processed by StereoTool. Go to StereoTool.com. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey everyone, and welcome to the unofficial Unreal Engine podcast, where we talk about Unreal Engine and green screened chairs. We're your hosts, Jacob and Alex. Uh, before we get started, make sure you like and subscribe, rate, whatever it is, uh, wherever you're listening and watching. It helps us a lot. And uh, with that, we'll get right into it. You know, we'd like to do a little kind of word association, a little fun, um, you know, with, with folks who, who come on the show. Uh, so I'm just going to say some words and you're just going to, you know, fire right back at us. The first thing that comes to your head. All right. That sound good. I think so. We intentionally don't want people to know who you are yet. This yeah, is not yeah, great. Yeah. Introduce great. Yourself. I love it. I love it. Everyone's going to judge you for this and then they're going to stop listening. And cool. you know, that's, that's how we do it here. All, all right. right. Home. Home. Uh, Kansas. Work. Home. <laughs> <laughs> Food. Tacos. Nice. Travel. Uh COVID. <laughs> Drink. Uh gin. Mm. Virtual production. Yes. <laughs> Unreal Engine. Uh fun. <laughs> okay. And and you know, a few follow-up questions. How do you take your coffee, Steve? Mm, I prefer lattes these days i'm yeah. one of those people who has like one of those ridiculous at home coffee machines now uh due to covid and working from home uh so i would say plentiful, plentiful. uh and often <laughs> <laughs> that's a good answer all right what, what what's your what's your favorite time of day mm, definitely evening yeah evening. i'm definitely not a morning person as evidenced by the coffee <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 a fair assumption. Okay, and then what was the last thing that you really laughed at? Like, what was something funny that happened recently? Uh, my I have a two and a half year old, 
uh he's been really into uh trucks and trains recently and he recently saw my demo reel and he looked at it and i mean he's not you know like amazed by digital technology or anything but he watched it and then he he just looked at me and said it needs more trucks <laughs> i was like oh thanks buddy <laughs> that's great yeah. that's fantastic well awesome so alex would you like to introduce our guest Absolutely. Steve, very excited to have you on the podcast. I've known you uh, for a few years now. We've never met in person. This might be the first, second time we've ever had a, a video uh, view of each other, but I'd love for you to take a moment to introduce yourself to our audience, a little bit about who you are, where you come from, and uh, maybe why you might be here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hi, everybody. I'm Steve Began. I'm a Unreal developer. Uh, senior tech artist currently at Framestore, um, which is in New York. So next time I'm there, we'll have to meet up. Uh, yeah, I've been using Unreal for about five years. Um, I've been all around doing virtual production, experience design, architecture visualization, VR. Uh, I've done a lot of like mentoring and uh, education. Um, taught at the Kansas City Art Institute uh, as an adjunct for Unreal, uh, CG Spectrum mentor authorized instructor, um, all, all sorts of things. Uh, before that, I was in motion design. Uh, that's a whole nother topic. Uh, but yeah, I, I've been doing this for a while. Um, always happy to talk about it and share my experience with people. Yeah, welcome to the show, Steve. Um, and speaking of sharing your experience, how did you first come to uh, hear about Unreal Engine? What were your first steps into it like? Tell us a little about that. that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, back when I was a, a motion designer here in Kansas City, I was mostly freelance, but I was just, I was bad. I just wasn't good at, <laughs> at it at all. Um, so I mean, more adequate, more accurately, I'd say I was just professionally unemployed uh, for a large part of it. And I was always looking for like the next like thing that I could kind of latch on to. And I was early in my career, like, oh, maybe I'll get into 3D, maybe I'll get into like animation, something like that. Uh, around that time, 360 video was starting to get really popular. And at the same time, um, Hover Junkers by Stress Level Zero was in production. And I thought that looked like super cool. And just like the marketing for it and the idea of like being in a headset and being able to walk around was just wild to me. And I thought like, that's so expensive. I'm never gonna be able to like, even see a VR headset like in my lifetime. Uh, and then a friend of mine um, told me that a company here in Kansas City was doing stuff with VR for architecture. Uh, and I was like, okay, that that sounds cool. I'll, I'll definitely have to check it out. So I cold called this company, um, Pulse Design Group, a healthcare design firm here. Uh, really small place, uh, but they do like some really big healthcare projects. Uh, I, I just talked to them and I said, Hey, I want to see what VR is like. Can I just like come say hi sometime? Uh, so they let me come in for a tour, uh, and I tried on a DK one, uh, and my first experience was just like, just like earth shattering. I was like, Oh my gosh, this looks so realistic. And, you know, it's, it's like, I'm there, you know, that whole thing. Uh, so that evening I went home and downloaded unreal and, um, the next day they called me back and said the person who was in charge of their VR stuff was already like, they'd already put in their two weeks notice. So 
are you looking for a job? Because you're the only person we've ever talked to who's interested in this <laughs> stuff. So uh, I got immensely lucky and um, I was there for a few years and yeah, it was just no turning back. I've never felt the need to go back into motion design, anything like that. <laughs> can, can we just clarify? So you had Unreal downloaded for one day and then took a job working in I, Unreal? I got so lucky, man. Like <laughs> I, 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 yeah, yeah. I, I, I also looked, I looked at unity very briefly and it was kind of like a toss up. Like, I mean, everyone's using unity these days. This was, this was like right after unreal went um, free. So most what of the, that? that was like 2015, 2016, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So most of the people doing VR stuff were obviously in Unity already. So um, that that was like kind of a toss up for me. But the studio was using Unreal because that meshed better with uh, ArcViz. So um, that's what pushed me in that direction. <laughs> that's amazing. So for for folks out there who maybe are interested in getting a job working in Unreal Engine, or maybe they're interested in it would your advice be fake until you make it or you know what what's your advice for someone who's who's out there and maybe just saw some earth-shattering experience or like i want to do this like what what is that you know first piece of advice my first piece of advice would be don't get your advice from me because i i'll <laughs> i i know it i'm a privileged you know middle class white guy who's had every opportunity in the world um that being said yeah, fake it till you make it. And if you can't fake it, fake faking it till you make it. And oh. you know, figure it out as you go. And <laughs> like, if if you see the stuff you want to learn, like, figure it out. Half of tech art is just being resourceful and clever and, you know, making it work one way or another. <laughs> right. Uh, other than that, yeah, um, your community is always your biggest resource. Uh, no great digital work ever happens in a vacuum. You know, like you got to surround yourself with people who are uh, also really excited about tech, uh, people who are really talented, who want to, you know, make some cool things. Um, yeah, and hopefully you can run into other people who have a need, <laughs> like <Sure>. I did. <laughs> so, right place, right time. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned yeah. tech art. Can you explain to folks listening or watching? what it is a tech artist does, like wh what does that mean? Yeah, so before being a tech artist, I referred to myself as a creative technologist, uh, which both are extremely vague. Uh, it usually means you're doing like three jobs and getting paid for one as far as I can tell, but yeah. I won't say you're wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, so tech artists, um, in my experience, they tend to fall into one of two camps, either you are like sort of a pipeline engineer, you're a coder, you know, you know, blueprints, you're familiar with like Perforce, admin, things like that. Uh, and you can also like make custom tools in Unreal, like that, that kind of Unreal stuff. Uh, the other kind of tech artist is more like uh, procedural shaders, you know, spend all time in like the material editor. Uh, maybe they can like do like really good lighting, things like that. That is more the camp that I'm in. Uh, I tend to, yeah, it, it's kind of like being uh, just a generalist, but more focused on coding would be 
a good way to put it. And it really just varies from industry to industry and from one studio to another, like virtual production studios, a tech artist is going to be probably spending most of their time on like optimization and making a, you know, 200 million poly scene run at more than two frames per second. Uh, whereas with like automotive, a tech artist is probably more focused on like pipeline stuff and um, also optimization. <laughs> <laughs> Less so nowadays, that. maybe in Unreal Engine. Yeah. Five. Oh, we'll see. dude. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, don't we all? Right. So, how did you kind of land on tech art? Is that just because you started in VR and you gave us a list of maybe I don't know, like a dozen things you did in the meantime? Like, yeah. how did how did that happen? Yeah. So, um, so I was at Pulse Design Group and. Uh, I promise I'll answer your question. It's just kind of like a yeah, yeah, yeah. story. Well, that's that's the right kind of answer, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 So um, I started there in like 2015 and worked on ArcVis stuff for a while. Um, uh, Rick Embers was the principal who was kind of in charge with the VR division, and he he really saw like the potential and the opportunity for the tech, like. VR is so much more than, you know, just seeing an operating theater, like we can actually use this to make design decisions and things like that. So um, he really helped push uh, the studio in that direction with the VR team, uh, which was really great. And we scaled up to uh, three people on my team. And then we actually got into um, medical simulation. So working with some enterprise companies doing like, uh, tours of hospitals or in one case um a heart surgery training system in vive pro uh which was absolutely wild i can come back to that but uh <laughs> yeah it, it went from arcviz to like actual like pseudo game dev kind of stuff and then from there i got a job at dimensional innovations which is a, a experience design firm here in kansas city and that was way more like generalist sort of role, creative technologist, you know. And then sometime, uh, this was probably a little bit more than a year ago, uh, I saw this company called Happy Mushroom that um, got big because they worked on the environments for Mandalorian for the volume. Uh, so I, same as how I got my first job, <laughs> I reached out to um, the CEO of the company and I was just like, hey, we've never met each other, but your work's pretty rad. Can we like talk about it sometime? <laughs> and lo and behold, I he responded and then messaged me back and was like, hey, are you looking for a job by any chance? Because we need tech <laughs> artists. And I'm like, well, I, I may be. <laughs> so... <laughs> So it was, it was more just like uh, I had the experience to fit into that role. Uh, and if someone wants to call me a tech artist for doing the stuff I'm already doing, sure. You know, that's that's the role you have on your team. And now that I've uh, had that experience, it seems like, you know, every studio out there is just desperate for tech artists. I think part of that is because tech artists wear a lot of hats, like we were saying. And when you don't know how to solve a problem, you look for whoever can do that, right? I mean, I, I've always thought about um, I, tech art for me has always been like when I first got into Unreal, I was always, you know, thinking about, oh, I want to build this, this and this, like in terms of like an experience, like, oh, I want to make a game or I want to make, I don't know, an architectural experience, whatever it is. And then I always end up being more interested in like 
mastering a material or like creating some cool tool. It, like that's how I kind of got into a lot of the stuff I do today. But I remember watching a video um, by Ryan Brooks, who's on the Epic team. And I remember watching a video, I think it was like his video on uh, like uh, Ray Marched uh, Clouds and Fog that he did. And he was, he, you know, classic Ryan Brooks shows up in like the Hawaiian shirt. I would love to have Ryan Brooks on this podcast, by the way. Ryan. All yeah. hail Ryan Brooks. Ryan yeah. Brooks, please come on. <laughs> um, you know, the classic Hawaiian shirt. And he's just going on about like, he's just going so much deeper than I thought you could go with Unreal. And I was like, wow, that's like, that's cool. That's like, I would love to do that. You know, that, that, that sounds awesome. And then you also see lots of tech artists who do totally different things. So it is, it's pretty broad, but it's also like, I mean, it's also always been for me also part of part of what I've been very interested in, in with Unreal is like mastering those little subsystems, being a power user, and like the material editor is a job as it turns out, right? Like, <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is so much fun, and it's always something different. And if anyone is interested in you know becoming a tech artist and you know like finding like a really awesome job very quickly out of school, like. There are so many great, you know, resources for learning. Obviously, I'd recommend uh, like uh, William Fauché's uh, YouTube series for learning Unreal. Totally awesome stuff. Uh, Clinton Jones Ponisher on YouTube has really awesome stuff where he's learning Unreal awesome. all the time. Yeah, uh, I I think there's like tons of really great blogs out there. Twitter is honestly like my best resource for tech art right now um yeah some really awesome people to follow and everyone's just like so awesome and like everyone's really cool about sharing their work and yeah uh, their resources yeah do you have any any like folks you'd like to call out on, on twitter for some like someone who just did something super cool that you're like wow that is awesome yes yes i do uh so the thing i'm going to show later on is oh, okay directly from uh, I know I'm going to butcher this. I'm so sorry, but Tazid Korambale, I believe is how it's pronounced. Uh, he's a tech artist at Epic. I believe he's on the Fortnite team, but he used to have a blog for tech art and he showed some tutorials for how to make some really awesome procedural and animated shaders. Uh, and I, I went through that blog and I did every single one of his tutorials, recreated them for myself and like learned as much as I could from it. Uh, his blog is now offline. So if you're listening to this and you're looking for it, it's not there. Uh, please bring it back online because I have questions. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like all of all of that stuff has been like in my personal asset library as like stuff I've learned and collected over time. And uh, the stuff that I'm going to be showing later, like is directly from like that learning experience. So uh, people like him, like I wouldn't, you know, be where I am as a tech artist without that kind of help. Uh, so, uh, awesome. super big thank you. Yeah. And there's, you know, countless people out there who are just like posting just awesome stuff just every day. It's kind of intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> every once in a while. Yeah. You see someone who's just like doing something crazy. I, I remember I saw on Twitter, um, Asher zoo, I want to say is his name. He oh, goes on Twitter. Oh, who's doing all the, yeah. the fluid simulations in Niagara. Like, holy crap. Like that is some, ins he was like day one making fluid sims you know real-time fluid sims that looked incredible and man I, I was so jealous like i was like i wish i could do that like that would be the coolest thing ever yeah i think uh at epic he he was responsible for a lot of the uh 
cloud sims for the Unreal 5 demo, Valley of the Ancients. Yeah. yeah. That does really cool stuff. Me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It feels a bit to me like the arc of diving into Unreal Engine is at first it seems very intimidating. Oh my God, how do you get started? Then you might get into a bit of a rhythm and you're like, hey, I, I'm pretty good at some stuff. I can make something look pretty cool. But then the deeper you go, the more you realize how endless of a yeah. journey uh, it can be. And it becomes this thing where the more you know, the more you realize how much there is you don't know. So when we talk about uh, getting into the world of Unreal Engine and everything Steve's covered so far, one thing I'm curious to ask you, Steve, is how did you also make the transition from saying, I feel comfortable with the things I can do in Unreal Engine to also saying, I feel comfortable teaching other people how to do things in Unreal Engine. And so we segue a little bit into uh, your journey into uh, creating courses as part of Unreal Online Learning and then also becoming an authorized instructor. Yeah, that's a really great question. So um, one thing I learned from that heart surgery team that I was working with, um, that training team at this medical company really kept reinforcing that when it comes to medical training, their practice is, what was it? it was like um, watch once, do once, teach once. And that's how you reinforce learning. Like you have to observe someone doing it. You have to do it yourself under supervision and then teach it to someone else. And it just reinforces it in your mind. Uh, so that kind of stuck with me. And I was thinking like, yeah, I can do like this ArcBiz stuff all day. Like, you know, it's, you know, importing Revit models and uh, optimizing stuff here and there. Uh, but I'm not actually going to like cement it in my mind unless I like make YouTube videos and show my process. And um, oh, who's uh, Unreal Lighting Academy? Uh, I forget his name, but there's a really awesome YouTube series from this guy. Uh, he was at Dice. He's been like at all these really awesome studios out in Europe. Um, he had like long form tutorials, very like very much showing the process. And when something wouldn't work, he'd kind of like talk through it and be like, oh, okay, well, this didn't work because this happened. And maybe we should try this instead of this, instead of like editing everything together, like nice and clean. Mm -hmm. So I, I tried making some videos like that, uh, showing the process. Uh, and it was really awesome. Like I, I had, you know, a bunch of views for a few videos and uh, it did help me learn things and become more comfortable teaching and at my own pace. And then, you know, hearing myself and editing it after the fact. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, um, Joe Raddick, a friend of mine, uh, was working with the education team for online learning. He said they were looking for authors. And I said, sign me up because that sounds awesome. I'd love to help out. Uh, it was definitely something I wasn't comfortable with yet, but something I knew like I'm not going to get comfortable with it unless I do it. So um, I worked with uh, Jenny O'Connor and Joe and... Uh, we worked with a really awesome architect, uh, actually from Pulse Design Group, Callum Viertaler, who uh, designed a house in Revit that was then used for uh, architecture training projects for online learning. So, um, yeah. I, I, did for that for a I believe we've, we refer to this now as the Epic House. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's it's cool that it like still exists for tutorials and stuff. It's really awesome. Uh, so I did online learning for a little while, and then uh, probably about a year ago, year and a half ago, um, I heard about this authorized instructor program. Uh, obviously, I had to sign up for it. If nothing else, you know, getting the little badge in my email is going to be cool. <laughs> so um, 
yeah, I did that, did the, did the whole training thing. It was, um, during COVID. So like, we didn't have to do things in person. We just like did video calls and everything. Uh, that went really well, got authorized. I have, uh, yet to have any requests to do any training for anyone anywhere. Uh, I'm glad I'm authorized as an instructor. <laughs> I would be happy and excited to utilize that, uh, if ever needed, but, uh, now I also have two kids and <laughs> my time is very spare. So, um, yeah, I, I did that. And along the way, um, the art Institute here in town, uh, really wanted to start teaching VR development. So, uh, being one of those resources here in town. And I had also been, um, the organizer for the, one of the organizers for the Kansas City VR meetup group for a few years and, uh, also for the unreal user group. Um, it was just like a natural fit. Like if they're going to be teaching this stuff, like I will be there to make sure it's taught right kind of thing. Uh, so did that and yeah, it, it's, it's been really great to help people learn and it's really helped me learn like the, the things that I need to focus more on um, specifically like the, the basics of like what shaders are and textures and how, how things need to be imported, especially from other programs that are weird like Rhino. Uh, so that, that's been a lot of fun and it's been really, um, advantageous for me too. Steve, what's a, a random, uh, let's say hashtag UE tip that you've encountered recently where you couldn't believe that you hadn't, uh, uh done that before. Mm, just one, um, here, I'll, I'll give you a moment to think something that yeah. I, uh, found out this week that blew my mind was, um, over the past year, I've started using the event track in sequencer quite a bit because the event track lets you actually make things happen inside blueprints from the sequencer. So you can be playing along animation, 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 then, you know, initiate something crazy happening inside of a blueprint. And I didn't know until this week that that event track can actually be uh, essentially a child of a particular track in the sequencer. So the particular example I, I was using it for this week was actually um, rebinding all these elements that were in the sequencer so that they could work with things that were spawned in the scene that the sequencer didn't know anything about. And uh, that was incredibly useful and is now saving me a ton of uh, work for elements where I realized, like, I don't know what is going to be happening in this scene in this particular moment in 20 minutes, um, but I, I'm, I'm going to have some kind of workaround to have things still play through sequencer with parent-child relationships. Being able to have an event track that is actually directly connected to something with rebinding as part of that is super useful. D didn't you say you also found, like, some secret event naming thing recently? Who, who was it who told me this? That it's like... Um, there's a thing where, you know, you expose uh, an event tick to, um, sequencer, right? Mm -hmm. The idea is like, if you have some blueprint value that needs to be updated with every like sequencer update, but there's, oh, man, now I'm going to like leave this on a cliffhanger. There's this, this, if you name a, an event, a specific name, it is just automatically called. And oh. I did not know this. And then someone told me that I thought it was Alex. I'm going to go and have to like retry this and figure out what this name is. But I found that recently and I thought it was you, Alex. But I, I don't know. I mean, the closest to that that, that I might have mentioned is um, being able to hit the checkbox for call in editor, which is no. super useful because any call of editor can is be used anytime. an underrated checkbox. Like we should have a ranking of checkboxes right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, here, here's a thought. Uh, uh -huh. 
So when I was at Happy Mushroom, I worked on this Netflix show called, which yeah. is uh, all done in Unreal, super awesome, really, really cool. Uh, and everything was done in sequencer, right? So uh, one thing I learned that kind of blew my mind, uh, instead of triggering effects that are already in the scene, you can just add them directly to sequencer to fire them there. So for example, if you wanted like a smoke plume to start at frame 53 or something, uh, you don't put it in your outliner mm -hmm. and then like toggle the visibility at frame 53, you would drag it directly into the sequencer and then tell it when to activate. So it's not like living in your world, just like invisibly until a certain point, blew my mind, especially when you're working with like perforce and like that would otherwise mean you have to check out the level and like change the level design. Good point. Like, big no, no. Yeah. So uh, do as much in sequencer as you can. Don't try to fake it if you don't need to. <laughs> yeah. And that becomes nice and modular as well, because the more things you have spawned directly from sequencer, um, the more that you can actually take that sequence and put it in other levels. Whereas if you have something that's in the level and you need to possess it, from sequencer, then you're creating this very strict relationship. And if you now want to use that sequencer in a different level, you need to rebind it and that becomes a bit of a nightmare. So absolutely for the sake of uh, keeping your level clean for not dealing with checking things out, uh, spawn as much as possible directly from sequencer. And, and the terminology there is, is inside a sequencer, you know, you can select an asset and you can convert to spawnable, but what's the other type? It's like- uh, Possessable. Possessable, right, okay. so. If you drop something into your scene and you click it and then you go into sequencer and you say add, you know, add to sequencer, it's going to just make it possessable, meaning, you know, it, it like sequencer can take control of that object, uh, you know, while it's running. And then there is a little drop down. I think it's like the upper left hand corner se sequencer that's like convert it to uh, spawnable and that's going to remove it from your level and check and add it to your sequencer or your level sequence, right? There is a, that's the reason why it's called a level sequence, right? Is because like levels contain actors and as it turns out, so can sequencer. Yeah, and the tip Steve was describing basically allows you to bypass the part where the thing ever had to exist in your level at all. You can drag things directly into sequencer um, that weren't even in your level and it's you know automatically gonna be something that is considered spawning from there. In fact, anytime you hit the little camera icon, in sequencer, you are spawning cameras that only exist in the sequencer. As soon as you close the sequencer, those cameras go away. Hmm. Yeah. And it's pretty cool because you can't really do that in, in uh, like most animation pipelines, like you can't do spawnables, right? Like that, there's no idea of like a runtime, so to speak. Uh, it's more of like each frame has some state that you're assigning actions to. Uh, so it's a pretty unique feature of Unreal as far as I know. But um, for folks who have not even dug into Sequencer, it's really worth your time, even just so that you can do what I do and solve too many problems with Unreal Engine, where it's like, oh, I got to render an intro to a podcast. Why don't I do it in Unreal, which is exactly what we did for this podcast, because I'm like, I don't know, like, yes, I could like mess around in Maya or Houdini for like a day, or I could spend 30 minutes in Unreal and get something that, you know, looks pretty nice. Agreed. Well, as long as we're talking about tips, um, Steve, I heard that there was a, a little a little thing you might want to share with the class today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got a little thingy. Um, let me show you. Okay, can you see my screen? Yes, we can. 
So this is uh, not an environment I made. This was free content. This is uh, epic bike. I did not make that, but I did make this fancy effect. Uh, so what's happening here is we're getting um, essentially an animated wipe based on uh, the position of a blueprint. And we're driving a material parameter collection uh, to make this happen. So I'll kind of walk you through how this works. Uh, and for those just listening to this, you'll just have to imagine we see a really fancy bike with just the coolest animated shader you've ever seen in your life. Um, and yeah, it's like a, it's like a dissolve. We have to add some color commentary, right? Like, you know, okay, it's a, it's a wet street at night with a motorcycle and like what looks like a, a Japanese city. You know, we got to add more detail here, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Audio I was missing out on. I would compare the effect to if you've watched uh, the show Loki. Yeah. Uh, I think there's this there's this effect at some point where like someone does this cool like sci-fi grenade explosion thing and it makes like a vicinity like oh, yeah, that's... evaporate. You know, uh, kind of similar to that or almost like this the Thanos snap effect. If we were to add like some smoky uh, particles off of this and like dump the glow, so. Um, yeah, uh, I'll walk you through how to set this up. It's like a pretty, pretty basic basis of how this works. Um, we're going to touch on material parameter collections, um, the simplest blueprint you've ever seen in your life, and uh, just how to make this mask in a material. All good? Teach us. <laughs> All right. So first and foremost, uh, we need to make a material parameter collection. These are where you would just make a material. Uh, and all it is is just um, uh, a collection of parameters, uh, scalar and vector. Uh, and this can be really helpful for cases where you need to um, reference a value multiple places throughout a scene, right? So uh, we could make a parameter here and call it like, um, uh, I don't know, light glow amount or something. And we can reference that around like all of the different kinds of lights in our world, something like that. We can add vector parameters that could be like different colors. Uh, this has been really helpful for like architecture stuff where you want all of the walls to match like a certain thing. Or like if you're doing something and you're trying to match like branded stuff, this would be a really great place to unify that because then you can just change it here and it changes it universally wherever that thing is referenced, right? So uh, all I did is I made a vector parameter and I called it location. And that is it in here. That is all we need in the material parameter collection. After that, I made a simple blueprint, uh, just an actor. I called it like BP white animation or something, something really complex. And then uh, think, think about how a blueprint is structured, right? It can hold three different kinds of things. It can hold data, right, in the forms of variables, whether it's just a value or like a Boolean, whatever, something like that. Components, whether it's geometry, lights, collision boxes, AI stuff, weird things like that, or logic. All we're gonna use this for is that logic. Uh, and we're gonna jump into the construction script here. And this, this fires every time this blueprint is updated in the viewport. So anytime that is moved, if it's spawned, something like that. Uh, one caveat here, if we're gonna try to like animate this effect in sequencer, we'd actually wanna do this logic in the event graph on tick. 
or just not use this blueprint at all. Uh, but for now, we're gonna make this. Um, we're gonna do set or set vector parameter value, and then we would uh, choose the material parameter collection we're looking at, and the parameter name, which should be location. And then we want to get world location of the default scene root, plug that into the parameter value. Boom. So all this is doing, anytime this blueprint is moved in the world, it's going to update that vector value to be the XYZ of where that thing is in the world, right? Uh, pretty straightforward. And that can be used to drive any number of effects. So here I've used it for this cool animated wipe shader. You could also use it for like a localized black hole is kind of a cool thing I've done before. Or like if you wanted to draw a gradient on like a variety of objects in your world that are like in this space, uh, you can do something like that. Uh, any questions before I hop into the material side of it? Works great no, for me so I far. Awesome. Pretty cool. I don't hear any questions from the audience either. So I'm just yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, very quiet. So uh, in the material, uh, I already have this set up, but I'll just kind of walk through it here. So uh, first, you want to drag your material parameter collection into the editor. Uh, so I already did that, and I selected location. We want to mask just the red, green, and blue values because we don't want the fourth alpha value because we're just we're turning the RGB into XYZ, essentially. Uh, we're subtracting that from absolute world position, which is probably one of my favorite nodes. Uh, this is a cool node that you can use to uh, sample where a given point on an object is in 3D space. So uh, if you wanted to, for example, um, make the tops of mountains white and make it look like snow, you could use a node like this. You could. Uh, Gosh, I don't know. Um, and and people people don't really know about this input data node, and the fact that it is like there's so much cool stuff. If you hit that drop down on your left, like I just want to mm -hmm. highlight this real quick. Like depending on what kind of sh shader or what kind of material you're using, like a transparent mask, et cetera, et cetera. And also if you're using forward or deferred rendering, uh, you get a bunch of awesome information here that not everyone knows exist. And in some cases you get even more than this. For example, if you use like a post-processing material, you'll get all your depth, you'll get a ton of stuff and you can do so many cool effects with you know just this one node. Uh, it's really quite cool. Yeah. And for the for the audience uh, just listening in, so some of the options we have here are absolute world position, absolute uh, world position, excluding material shader offsets, camera relative world position, uh, including material shader offsets, and then the same but excluding. Right. And for if you, for example, uh, turn it to a transparent material, you'll get, like I said, you'll get ambient occlusion uh, depth information, or you can. I, actually, I don't know if it all comes in through this note, but you can get all that same information through a similar manner. And kind of supplementing your materials with like data from the rendering pipeline is kind of, in my opinion, one way that you kind of take your shader to the next level in the sense that like you're kind of having your material interact with more in your scene or maybe take into account information outside of itself. Yeah, uh, so similar node, but you're right. Like pulling like the normal information and using that in materials, you can get some wacky results very quickly. Um, yeah, I've also used this uh, if you uh, 
uh, mask out the red and red and green channels and plug that into a texture. You can use this to make, for example, textures that tile uh, based on where they are in the world instead of how big the object is. Mm -hmm. So if you plug that into a plane, you can make ceiling tiles that are actually scaled appropriately. And you can scale that plane without having to like go back in and like change the scale of the texture, things like that. Uh, this is a magical node. Uh, it's made my life so much easier. Uh, but in this case, all we're doing is we're setting this up. So we're comparing the location of that blueprint to the world position of that object. Mm -hmm. Very simple, very straightforward. Um, and then from there, we're plugging in uh, that output of the component mask, the red, green, blue mask, to the A of a sphere mask. And all this does is it essentially creates a black and white mask uh, where we can control the radius and the hardness and where it's located and uh, how big it is. Uh, the B of this node is going to be absolute world position. Radius, uh, for me, I have it plugged into some uh, weird stuff with like time and math that we're not going to worry about right now. But uh, like a good starting point would be like 100 for the radius, and this is in centimeters. Uh, and then hardness is zero to one. Uh, that's just going to be like the fall off of the sphere that you're making. Next, we need to plug the output of that sphere mask into the alpha of a lerp node. Uh, and the B of that lerp node is going to be the output of the subtract node that we made previously. So all this is going to give us is just a black and white gradient that we can throw on an object. And if we plug this into uh, the material, we'd see where um, the, the object is, uh, sorry, where the blueprint is near that it'll be white and everything else will be black based on the proximity of that object. So from there, um, all I did to make this uh, more snazzy was uh, I added a few layers of noise on here. So as it blends in, we're getting like some chaotic nature to it. Uh, cranked the emissive channel to give it some glow. Uh, used time to make it fade in the future or fade in the distance. Uh, and I can actually set it so uh, it uses a sine wave, so it just bounces back and forth, right? Uh, added some color. And because this object is so complex, I have a few different material options. So there's like one that's blue, one that's yellow, one that's a little orange-ish. So we get like a really nice gradient in there. Uh, and then from there, it was just um, tweaking it until uh, I got really bored of working on it anymore. Uh, and I can kind of show you all of the different parameters I have on here for art direction. Uh, it's pretty extensive. Wow. And I like to keep a lot of controls for um, art control uh, and having like a really nice library of noise textures I can use and pull from so I can see like, okay, maybe this would be cool, this would be cool. Um, so for those who are just listening, he just opened up his, you know, material uh, um, parameter or his um, instance, instance uh, of the material, and there must be, you know, like 50 different parameters in here. But that's pretty awesome. I mean, this, I mean, this is a, do you just take this from project to project, the, this uh, base material? I have a, you know how in the original Matrix film, there was that like, white corridor when they're in the matrix the first time was like i need guns or something yeah. and it, you know <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah i basically have an unreal environment that's like that where i have it structured where like this <laughs> area is materials this one is <laughs> animated effects this one is uh avatars and characters wow. uh so i have a whole section of animated shaders like this one and i have 
those master materials with three different um, options for them. Uh, so yeah, then I, then I have um, a folder I set up in my personal asset library with uh, tech art resources. Uh, that includes, I'll just show you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that'd be good. <laughs> I'm not just going to yeah. talk about it. Yeah. So uh, I have tech art resources. This is stuff I found over time. Uh, there's a tech artist, Luos something. He's all over Twitter, has some really awesome tech art resource packs. Uh, so I have a few of his material functions here that have been really helpful. Uh, I have a whole selection of noise textures that have saved Ooh. my butt more often than than once, and a whole like nice variety, right? So you get That's like some nice normals, yeah, yeah. You get some like ice, some um, electric kind of stuff, some sci-fi sorts of things. Uh, and then it, it, ex have... before before you leave that page, explain to people in general like what noise is really good for when you're when you're making materials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, noise, is, this this texture right here that I've named T Perlin Noise M, uh, that Perlin noise is used in about 99% of all visual effects for anything ever in the last 20 years. Uh, noise is basically just a, a, a 2D image that um, helps drive randomness, uh, whether it's grunge on an object or uh, breaking up the edges of terrain or making landscape blend more smoothly between cobblestone and grass. Uh, clouds use noise. Uh, it, it, anything is going to use noise if it, you know, is going to have any semblance of realism. Uh, it's it's really great to have. A wide selection of these sorts of things like yeah Perlin noise you could use this for like um, modulating the roughness of your chrome metal right use that in like a subtle subtle hint to like get some like a little bit of wear and tear on that but then hey maybe you'd want like this uh, this kind of looks like um, like a cellular globules maybe you'd use this for um, emulating pitting that would happen on like a stop sign over time or uh, from like hailstones, something like that. Um, you have to think about like how these different things could be used. And if you have them readily available, then you can say, okay, well, in this circumstance, maybe I'd use this one a little bit easier and multiply this one against this one, or maybe fade this one back a little bit. And it could be a cool metallic channel, things like that. Uh, and then I have a few that are red, green, blue as well. So I can pull like one channel or two or whatever I need. Um, yeah. And actually, Steve, can you also call out the fact that I don't know how many people know that you can have a single texture where you're actually using those RGB channels to have different kinds of data in them? Oh, oh, oh. So, like, so like Alex said, you can have <laughs> materials or textures with uh, RGB and alpha, right? Mm -hmm. um, so oftentimes, um, anytime you're using a diffuse or base color albedo texture, you're using all R, G, and B, right? But for uh, roughness, for example, the roughness channel is only looking for a zero to one value and a mm -hmm. single zero to one value. Uh, I don't think you get any different result if you give it R, G, and B. Uh, and if you did, it wouldn't be realistic at all. So uh, if you were to plug in the RGB from your base color into roughness, it would just convert it to black and white. Uh, so what if you took your 
brick texture, for example, and pull just the red value from that and plug that into your roughness. That's all it needs is a single um, uh, zero to one value. Uh, that means that your noise textures and any mask uh, needs to be compressed differently mm -hmm. and they'll have different sizes uh, accordingly. Uh, and then you can also stack them. So maybe your uh, red channel can be your roughness, your green channel can be your ambient occlusion, your blue channel can be your metallic, something like that. Um, different programs have different ways that they compile them all together. And there's a lot of methodology about like which one's the best. Uh, green. Uh, so um, yeah, it's it, if you're working on like a large project, especially with like a team or any like AAA production, you're going to want to bundle those together in a program like, you know, Substance or uh, I think Quixel does it automatically. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you'll get more bang for your buck that way too. I, I want to go on a little, a very small side tangent here because I think this is actually something interesting. Um, this process, which I think is, uh, is is kind of sometimes referred to as, uh, I guess, texture packing, or um, is actually really j just a broader effect of how we now treat like images and GPUs. And because I'm a huge nerd, uh, I I think about this kind of stuff. But GPUs like were initially designed for games, right? Like they were designed to render images and rasterization and all this other stuff. But over time, people realized, oh, like a GPU is just a processor that takes data in like a very specific way. And in, in most ways, it's just textures, quote unquote, right? Like frame buffers, which are really, you know, you have four channels and you have a, a spread out resolution and you can encode as much data as you want into that and operate on it in parallel, right? Like that's what a GPU does. But it doesn't have to be an image. It doesn't have to be rasterized, which is like why you hear about things like compute shaders or really like what CUDA is, for example, like all CUDA is doing is like, well, CUDA is obviously way more advanced to, than anything like I, I could describe here. But like um, all it's doing is like utilizing what was for games, right? And being clever about how it's like essentially packing information and operating on that information. And so, you know, when we think about games, like, I encourage you to think of a texture as just like some way of encoding data because at the end of the day, like that is true. Like you can encode any information you want in a texture. Like for example, in Houdini, like if you bake out a simulation um, into, uh, I believe they have like a, a simulation where you, you can bake it out into cards, like this, the, the labs tools. And it will bake essentially uh, uh, 3D points into a texture because you have three channels. So you have X, Y, Z. <laughs> like you can do anything with it, really. And it's really pretty fascinating to see kind of how, how people have started to think about it. You touched on something, Jacob, that I'd, I'd really like to poke at a little bit. Uh, you mentioned Houdini. And oh, when we're talking yeah. about tech art, yeah. Uh, if, if you want to be a tech artist, Houdini is, I can't understate how much value there is in that program right now. Like yeah. every studio I've talked to, like they, they are just so desperate for Houdini tech artists. Uh, and that means that there's a lot of value in that uh, and not enough people who know it. Uh, my friend David Olson told me, if I learn Houdini, I'll be buying my second vacation home soon. 
So <laughs> I'm, I've been trying to learn that I've done like some, some basic introductory and like intermediate sort of things. Um, some stuff that looks pretty cool, but like the, the advanced stuff and man, if you can like I, I, master yeah. Houdini, you can do anything. <laughs> that so I I have always felt that if you if you have Unreal and Houdini, you can actually do you can conquer the anything. world. Like it's, <laughs> the problem is Houdini costs like five thousand dollars and Unreal is free. So I, obviously everyone's going to start out <laughs> in there. But uh, I think that like you're absolutely right. I mean Houdini is incredible, um, and I I really encourage people to check out the Houdini engine plugin for unreal they released a version 2 and it's awesome like the original one was good it was a bit hacky you kind of had to like know like what to name your material parameters and like how to name the material channel like you kind of had to do that but now it's it's a lot better where houdini engine is, is just a lifesaver if you're working on any large project like if you're working on kind of small projects it's kind of fun you know you might get some value out of it but chances are you're probably going to spend more time on it because you're in houdini but as soon as you start to like scale what you want to do with your projects, Houdini all of a sudden is just like your godsend. It just does everything you need it to do and more, right? Yeah. So Houdini does have a free limited license, um, but I don't believe Houdini Engine for Unreal works with. with no. So yeah, who, there's Houdini Apprentice and Indie. So Apprentice is free. Indie is a hundred bucks. Uh, and with Indie, I actually, I don't know if you can export HDAs with Indie. Probably not. Um, but you're, you're kind of stuck paying for a license if you'd really like to dive into it. What I will say, though, is that, you know, before you go out and try to find, like, a cracked version of Houdini, if you are going, if you want to, like, invest in your career in VFX or, uh, you know, tech art, game design, whatever it is, like, it's expensive, but it could be worth investment, and it could also be worth asking your boss, "Hey, like, will you buy me a license? I want to learn this." Even if you're not even, I don't know, find someone to pay for you. Like, there, there's someone out there who's willing to pay you to learn Houdini. I, I, I would bet that. For sure, yeah. So I, I have this set up in the free version of Houdini, and I want so badly to bring it in Unreal so I can like finish what I'm trying to do. But if I can get it to work, it'll be like the best thing I've ever made in my life. <laughs> Basically, it's a Houdini digital asset where I can give it any mesh in my scene, uh, and it would procedurally convert it into Wildberry Pop-Tarts. So I could, yeah, so I can assign it any mesh and I already have all the logic set up. So it'll like do all the like, um, uh, like triangulation and everything and like make the, the each surface have like the bevel and like, yeah. Uh, so all I need is to bring it into unreal and then assign some dang materials to this thing. And I'm good to go, but I'm, I'm just this close. <laughs> that's incredible. That's actually, I, that is not where I expected that to go at all. If someone is listening to this and they make it instead, like, I don't, I don't even want to be credited. I just want to see this come to fruition. <laughs> I, so top three Pop-Tart flavors then, like, what, what do you got? Oh, wildberry, strawberry, and cinnamon. Okay, okay, cinnamon, okay. Sure. As long as strawberry and cinnamon were there, I was okay. I mean, <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> Birthday cake. <laughs> what was the purple? Okay, anyways. Yeah, there's a whole bunch. 
and and I have not gotten to play in Houdini as much as I'd like to, but something that's a great starting point, I think, is for everyone who is very excited about the Matrix City sample, a lot of people don't realize that that is not a fixed city. It's not like all these incredible artists at Epic said, hey, we made a city, we're done. Almost all of that city is actually generated from Houdini. And not only is that true, but that entire Houdini project is available to use and modify and you can create endless permutations of the freeways and the buildings and the way the traffic patterns work uh, in that matrix city sample just through changing different parameters in Houdini. So if you do have access to Houdini, what a great sample project to get started with. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I actually can't access those files because I only have a 1060 GPU on my uh, personal, uh, but they look awesome. And uh, just knowing that like when it does work, it's extremely performant is incredible. Um, and that kind of ties into something I did want to bring up too. Like yeah. a lot of people, when they're talking about getting into Unreal development or tech art, their biggest pushback from themselves is saying like, I really want to learn this stuff, but I just have like this laptop or I have this old computer. Like I don't, I don't, I don't have a 30, 60 GPU. I can't afford that. Uh, neither can I, <laughs> and I don't do that professionally. Um, so keep in mind that with tech art, um, one of the biggest focuses is optimization. So if you're trying to optimize for your own lower end machine, uh, you're going to have to pull out extra stops and you're going to have to get even more creative to make things work. So um, that, that can be a fun uh, learning resource in that <laughs> regard. Although I do wish I could open up those matrix scenes and just go crazy. <laughs> yeah, that, That's, like that was a good point. That was hundred percent a good point. Um, you can learn a lot from just troubleshooting why it's so slow. I mean, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. Have what you guys are we played at all with um, with render doc? That's something I just yeah. Actually, about. I was about to say like if you if you can if you just stare at render doc you get smarter like <laughs> that's it that's just it. through osmosis yeah just through yeah. osmosis you like when i when i used i used to teach a course for epic on optimization and i'd open up render doc and i would like get carried away just like looking around render doc like oh check this out like this is how gpu works like look at this like incredible and then i'd waste 30 minutes to be like oh shit i gotta teach the rest of this course but um yeah render doc is awesome and was a savior in the early days of like the quest maybe alex uh had this experience but like the quest was a black box when you first got it and to develop for it was like almost impossible and then they created a um a remote debugger uh with render doc that was incredible and i i remember at oculus connect i was talking to devs and they're like yeah, we spent three months on an issue and we opened up RenderDoc and found that like the transparency was rendering in the wrong direction and we fixed it in like a day and it was done. So open RenderDoc, get smart is my, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That's that's maybe not good advice, but <laughs> it is pretty cool. Yeah. And RenderDoc is free. That's not something you free, have to yeah. spend $5,000 yeah. on. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and, and the documentation has definitely come a really, really long way. Uh, especially in the last couple of years. But yeah, back in the day when Quest was new, it was like, oh, you're developing on Unreal? Well, um, 
do you know any other developers? Because maybe they have information. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. um, having resources in like Slack groups and Twitter and friends like Alex who have been doing some wacky things for a while uh, oh, yeah. definitely pays off. Yeah. My, my claim to, to fame is uh, start. I, I, I think I told Alex this recently. This is how much I care about this. Uh, is I started the, the round of applause at Oculus Connect when they announced the link cable. I was the first one to clap. I started it. And you know what? That like... That's really a point of pride for me. Yeah. Really good. Thank you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> do, do you I guys mean, think there will ever be another Oculus Connect or is that done forever? No, it's done. That's too bad. It definitely wouldn't be called Oculus Connect. No, no. That's for sure. MetaQuest Facebook Connect. Or oh, God. No. <laughs> I no. bet they would make it a metaverse event and it would be like a heavily sponsored, you know, like. It, it wouldn't even be uh, like educational talks. Uh, it would be I, more about like, check out this cool product we made internally. Bye-bye. The problem I, I've had is just like, so many smart people I know went there and like worked on Horizons and worked on all their tech. And then Zuck shows up with his like Eiffel Tower that looks absolutely terrible. And you just gotta wonder like, who, like, What's going on? They got like 5,000 people working on this. Like, I think everyone's expecting the rate of like development to just blow up as soon as you throw like that much manpower at it. And it's just everything's gotten progressively worse as far as I can tell because we don't have Oculus Connect and I can no longer applaud at like feature releases. So, there are definitely a lot of really, really, really smart people over there working on stuff, you know, just across tech. And it's it's really yeah. awesome to see, um, yeah. And and the stuff I've seen with uh, like obviously the headset itself being like its own miniaturized product, an awesome computer I can put on my head and have six degree yeah. freedom. Like that, it's an awesome product, and like it really does just work. And I can't say the same for any HTC product I've had sure. as a headset. Um, but yeah, I. Actually, let's let's talk. I'm going to segue this into a news item that I wanted to cover, and we are we are running late, so like oh, it's okay. We're not Steve, running late. This can be yeah. I, I I don't want to hold anyone hostage, but three part yeah. Yeah, it's like a three parter now, right? So I did want to talk about a piece of news, which was Epic announced that they created a partnership with Autodesk, and this this was some pretty big news for a lot of folks. But I think I definitely want to get. Uh, you guys' take. I, I don't know, Steve. Did you see this news story? I did. I have thoughts. Okay, let's let's fire it then directly to you first. Like, what do you think about this? I mean, I, I think this is pretty huge. What's, what's the scuttlebutt? So, um, I've I've been fortunate enough to have been working with Epic on DataSmith related stuff, like with with those architecture courses. Same with you, Alex. Mm -hmm. uh, for a long time and like seeing it like be first released and that they made it like a free thing was just incredible and being able to take a whole revit file with you know ten thousand objects stick it through datasmith and you have it in unreal now it's like you just saved a lifetime of work uh by using this uh seeing more collaboration between autodesk and epic like hey that's awesome like i can't i can't bash that. I have nothing bad to say about that whatsoever. Uh, I, I just, I'm not 
clear on what exactly this means because I've seen the press release, I've seen like all these posts and everything, and it's saying there's a concerted effort to, uh, you know, continue development and improve the process and workflow between Autodesk programs and Unreal using Davismith. It's awesome, but what does yeah. it like mean? Is it like a financial thing, surely, or like? I want to read you. I want to read you a quote here that blew my mind when I read it, which was this is from the CEO of Autodesk who said. Epic is always going to be better than us at real time. We're always going to be better at deep design intelligence and what it takes to actually engineer a building or simulate a real building. That is a real statement in which a CEO both bashed their, <laughs> their own engineers' abilities and encouraged their own engineers to, that they are the best at something else, right? Like, this just, as far as I can tell, does not happen, right? Like, you don't have two massive companies like this who decide no like that's their thing this is our thing like we can do this together when both of them are so massive and are capable of doing so many things right like autodesk could have created a game engine if they wanted like they've been around longer than epic yeah they did <laughs> you remember stingray stingray, stingray I, I was gonna say rest in peace i don't yeah. remember stingray um yeah, imagine, uh, gosh, what would you say? Uh, twin motion, but less functional? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, there's Enscape and stuff, right? Uh, which, well, yeah, Enscape, for architects, but... is awesome, right? But, uh, yeah, Stingray, uh, Stingray was, had... Was Stingray the same as 3ds Max Live? Or was that so. a different product? Okay. I think that is a different product. Yeah. All right. All right. I, I remember the first time I discovered in 3ds Max that uh, the first index of their arrays starts at one, and I gave up on it right there on the spot. <laughs> I said, I'm never working in this software. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, this is encouraging to see. And you're totally right. Like, you, it's not often that you see two giant companies like publicly collaborate on something. Usually it's uh, like a quick acquisition and you know then six months later we hear what it was for. Uh, but yeah, this, this is encouraging to hear. Um, I'm excited to see where it goes and uh, anything that can uh, you know help the workflows for architects, especially in visualization. like yeah, that's awesome. It's going to save a lot of people a lot of time. Part of, the, part of the reason I segued this from Metaverse is that I actually think that this is... Um, so, I mean, for some context, um, you know, GTC happened uh, back in, you know, I, I don't know, a week ago, right? Mm -hmm. And NVIDIA has been talking about Omniverse for a while, and I think Omniverse is a interesting product. It has lots of features, and it does a lot. Um, and I think what this announcement showed me is that, you know, they're kind of maybe not the only game in town in the sense that I think Epic and Autodesk is taking a, a inherently different approach to this problem where it's more about like interoperability, you know, directly between them than necessarily some sort of centralized solution. And, you know, I, I don't think, I think it's way too early to call like who is a winner and a, who's a loser, but you can see kind of the parallels that you could draw between the features that, they're announcing here when it talks about, oh, we want to build bridges between AEC software and real time and you know things like Twin Motion and Unreal Engine. 
Um, so I, I'm pretty excited to see kind of where this goes. And, and one of the big headlines is like gateway to the Epic ecosystem. And I think to some extent this will be a pretty big, you know, gateway for people to kind of get on board the real time train, so to speak, um, from industries that, you know, maybe they're, they've heard of it, but don't have a way of accessing it, you know, for the same reason that like you, you know, you haven't been able to like create your Pop-Tart project in Houdini because like, you know, I don't know, you don't want to pay $5,000. Like they just added twin motion for free for everyone who has a desk subscription, right? Like that's, that's going to make a big difference for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. Really exciting to see how it affects that industry. Uh, and they're both growing and they both have made a lot of really good financial decisions in the past. So I'm sure, you know, there's going to be good results from it. Um, I guess I'm just not very patient. <laughs> yeah. What's your take on this, Alex? I mean, a lot of what's already been said. I, I think free is great. So the twin motion thing was great news. Um, I've always found it interesting how many members of Epic Games came from Autodesk. And yeah. without going into too many of their complaints about working at Autodesk, Epic Games is often considered a great company to work for, for a lot of reasons. And um, Autodesk sometimes gets uh, held back by just being a very corporate company that is very, very focused on making shareholders happy. And you'll see a lot of product release cycles where not a lot changes from cycle to cycle. They'll, they'll move some buttons around and uh, and break some things. And uh, that's 3DS Max 2022 or whatever. Yeah, I, and, I'm, a, I'm a strong proponent for Maya 2015. Yes. Um, you know, I, if I had Maya 2015, you know, I could, I could do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, partnerships are great. Free things are great. I, I'm just curious to see what the actual impact will be in the near term. I imagine this will allow a lot of people to take a look at twin motion who otherwise were using things like uh, Lumion. Um, so, you know, that's, that's potentially exciting. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point, and I, I I agree with what you said about Autodesk. Um, it seems like every time they have one of those major releases, you're right. Like it's like the big features that I've seen have been like bug fixes mm-hmm. or you know stuff that I'm not using. To be honest, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a power user by any by any stretch, but it seems like they have a lot of technical debt. Uh, so yeah, any, any way that they can collaborate with other companies to improve workflows for both. Uh, yeah, sounds great. All for it. Very cool. Well, um, as we start to, to wrap up this very wonderful and deep dive of a podcast, um, we were thinking that it's a little fun every week to do just a little bit of a, a showcase or a highlight of um, something cool we saw on Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever. And I just realized Steve, that the, the person I wanted to highlight also works at Framestore. I did not know that uh, until this moment. I know Framestore is a big company, but do you know Camila Bianchi? There are about 4,000 people at Framestore, Alex. <laughs> I, I, I figured I do it not. Like a, it's like being like, hey, Alex, you're from Vermont. Do you know Fred, <laughs> Fred Sam? Hey, whatever. hey you're yeah. a white guy. <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. Um, although I do I have do a story not. sometime about what happened to me in Brooklyn where I did know the one other white guy. In the- <laughs> well, I heard this story. This is a good story. <laughs> this will be the cliffhanger, though. We'll save this for another one. Good, good. What, what were you going to say, Steve? I, I do not know her. <laughs> okay. Um, well, uh, I'll, I'll describe um, the audio of this, and I think I can actually share my screen for whoever has the uh, the video. 
um, I, I was caught by this video because I Toy Story had such a big impact on me as a kid and the idea that people animated these characters to feel so alive and lifelike. Um, you know, I was I was seven years old when that movie came out and it blew my mind. And I think the control rig in Unreal Engine is uh, an incredible tool that is still only being used at the tip of the iceberg of its potential. So I, I was really excited to see the Camila here created a course using Buzz Lightyear as an example with a custom control rig and goes through how to rig and animate and, and set up a whole character um, just in Unreal Engine, no need for other software. So um, I'll put a link to this tweet and this course in our show notes. And that is my... Uh... <laughs> yeah. I think I got to um, show off... Uh, um some of Ash's stuff now since I mentioned him earlier, but I do, I, I do want to actually, um, pull up one of, um, maybe I can share my screen as well. Actually, I'm just going to just scroll down his Twitter. Cause honestly, this stuff is nuts, but I do want to share this for anyone who, um, is watching. Cause I can also show his, um, Twitter handle re here real quick. Uh, just there you are. I'm not going to try to pronounce that, but <laughs> you can see, like he's doing these crazy things with oh yeah this is like a classic example but he's been doing this for so long and look how incredible that stuff is you, you gotta really, describe I, it jacob some people don't know what we're looking at okay fair, what, it fair, is. Fair. <laughs> what we're looking at is an unreal terrain that's been like carved pretty deep and he has a water source that is running in real time uh it, it's a particle simulation and he's just getting incredible like uh, uh white water effects he has an effect where i he's breaking this hole inside of a dam and the water comes like flowing through it uh really i i can't recommend it enough that you try to that you check out his twitter that's uh at v-u-t-h-r-i-c on on twitter so definitely definitely check that out All right. Well, uh, Steve, I think we have one final question for oh, you to can I shout us out on. Shout out oh, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So I definitely want to shout out um, Dylan Brown. So yeah. this dude has been doing some really awesome stuff where he's been taking old Unreal projects that have been free on the marketplace and giving them the old Unreal 5 Lumen and Namite oh, treatment. Subway. Yeah, and he's he's been doing stuff with like uh, alembic fluid simulations made in Houdini that he then brings in for some you know extra razzle dazzle and uh, just kind of going through like some of his stuff. He's he's done like some amazing fluid stuff, but like he he was like updating like the Meerkat demo and uh, updating the Meerkat. I want to see what a take yeah. is on Weta. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Meerkat. I think he added like rain effects to it. I'm not oh, that's cool. Find it, but. Um, yeah, and like the kite demo, and he kind of talked about like uh, optimization issues that uh, were a part of that. Um, the kite demo, if, if anyone isn't familiar, is about six years old now. Uh, yeah. it, it was a very, very heavy scene. If you try to open it, you'll be waiting for shaders compile for a very long time, but uh, it has a lot of big old 4K, I think some 8K assets in there. It's a huge project, um, looks phenomenal. And it was used uh, for the announcement of Unreal going free that, that long ago. Um, so 
Yeah, it's really cool seeing someone like take old stuff that's free for everyone to take and use even now and just update it and kind of show like what you can do with it. Can you did did you read out the their handle? Yeah, it is uh at D Y L S E R X. His name is awesome. Dylan Brown. Cool dude. Yeah, and uh, go, I don't think I said Camila's. It's uh K-A-M-I-L-A-B-I-A-N-C-H-I. Camila Bianchi. Awesome. There are so many cool projects right now. I honestly, yeah, you just scroll through. You got to be on Unreal Engine Twitter, guys. If you're not, if you're not on Unreal Engine, like if you haven't booked, there's like the little subject areas. If you hadn't added Unreal Engine, you, you have to because it's the coolest stuff. Like you'll be both inspired and depressed at how good people are, are like how incredible people are, are working inside of Unreal just on their spare time. Like it's, it's nuts. Yeah. And some of these people, they're, they just started using Unreal like a month ago, but they went yeah. on this crazy deep dive down like a single rabbit hole. And they are now the world's foremost expert on this like very particular fluid simulation or something. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely been a great learning resource for me. And I'll just throw this out there. If anyone ever has any questions or tech art, or they want to like even talk about just like an informal mentorship, anything like hit me up. I'm totally happy to talk and you know i got really lucky to get where i am and i just want to pass that along to you too yeah you want to pay it forward that's that's very kind of you steve and he's also authorized instructor so yes, yes i am <laughs> you can hire him <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right alex you want to throw at, at him the last question here yeah, yeah. In the spirit of like a, you know, can't buy voices of VR. Um, you know, what's the ultimate potential of VR? I think Jacob and I want to try throwing out this idea of um, what does the future look like to you, Steve? It's an open-ended question. Yeah. Oof. I think it looks exciting. <laughs> I, th I think. Uh... You know, when, when I think about the future, I, I think, you know, outside of, you know, professional application and um, what I'm currently doing and uh, traditional tech art for immersive applications, I'm thinking like, you know, using, using technology and free programs to um, enable people to pursue careers they could never pursue previously. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, like my kids getting into like software development in the future. I find that really exciting. And um, when I was a kid, you know, watching Star Wars and like just being marveled and amazed by like all these amazing effects and like I couldn't believe that it wasn't real, you know. Uh, and now knowing like all of that is like well within reach uh, is just so just like astounding for me. Um, I see us becoming more interconnected and communities growing, and that that would be a really awesome thing to see. Obviously, more diversity and inclusion, uh, something that our industry uh, is working on. Uh, I think that'll be really exciting as well. Hmm. I'm very awesome. hopeful. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on, Steve. This has been excellent. Uh, yeah, thank and, you so much. Yeah, and, and with that, um, Everyone, if you've listened to this point, you 100% have to like, subscribe, rate, whatever it is. 
because you just listen to an hour or more of us talk about Unreal Engine, which means you're dedicated, right? Oh, well, hold on a second. Oh, Steve, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where, where can people oh, yeah, find yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's probably have to let him plug himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I completely slipped my mind too. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at S-B-I-E-G-U-N-1. Um, I'm the first of my name. I'm going to stick <laughs> to it. Uh, yeah, I'm primarily just on Twitter. I'm not like on Instagram or anything like that, but, um, yeah, hit me up there. Always happy to chat. Yeah. And we're always happy to hear uh, feedback on the show. Obviously, first time we've had a host or a, a guest host with us. Uh, very exciting. Please do hit uh, Jacob and I up at our uh, YouTube comment section. The email I think we have is uepodcast.gmail.com. Or no, we couldn't get that one. What is it, Jacob? Uh, you can just uh, info at uepodcast.com. Yeah, 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 yeah. Info at uepodcast.com. Uh, thanks, everyone, for your time. Uh, have a wonderful rest of your day.